Hello everyone and welcome to the December 11th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney of the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that a felon on probation is not the employee of the rehabilitation center he attended as part of his probation for purposes of workers' compensation benefits. Jose Velasquez pleaded guilty in Santa Barbara County Superior Court to a felony count of forgery. The court suspended judgment and placed Velasquez on supervised probation for three years, which included a requirement that he enter and complete a residential treatment program. So Velasquez entered the Salvation Army's Residential Adult Rehabilitation Center in Santa Monica for substance abuse treatment. The Salvation Army is a private, nonprofit organization, and its residential treatment program is a six-month program provided at no cost. The program includes 12 hours per week of counseling, attendance at weekly religious services, meditation, and a work therapy component during which participants work in the Salvation Army's warehouse. Velasquez was injured while moving furniture at the warehouse, and he sought workers' comp benefits for his injuries. And both the Salvation Army and the County of Santa Barbara denied his claim for benefits. During the program, Velasquez had no contact with the county, but the Salvation Army contacted his probation officer and reported everything he was doing and how he behaved and Velasquez was required to show his probation officer his program graduation certificate. The work comp judge concluded that Velasquez was not an employee of either the Salvation Army or the county and ordered that he take nothing against either one. The work comp judge acknowledged that Velasquez's work conferred a benefit upon the Salvation Army, but He reasoned the Salvation Army was not an employer, and the WCAEB affirmed his order. The board concluded that Salvation Army is exempt from providing workers' compensation as a nonprofit sponsor, and the county did not employ Velasquez because it did not exercise control over his working conditions. The Court of Appeal, in its published opinion in Velasquez v. WCAB, concluded that the Salvation Army is statutorily excluded from being an employer for workers' comp purposes under Labor Code Section 3301, and the record was inadequately developed during the administrative proceedings to determine whether the county was his employer. The latter issue was remanded to the board for further consideration. Accordingly, it affirmed in part and annulled in part and remanded the matter for further proceedings. And McDonald's prevailed in a public attorney general claim over providing employees' seats. In this case, Roosevelt Luckett worked for a McDonald's restaurant located on Venice Boulevard in Los Angeles. And from time to time, he worked in the drive through cash booth, where, uh, and he asked whether he could use a seat in the drive through cash booth, but McDonald's denied his request. 
Luckett then sued McDonald's under the Private Attorney General Act of uh, 2004. That's called PAGA. And it is under Labor Code Section 2698 and following code sections. Mr. Luckett alleged McDonald's violated Industrial Welfare Commission wage numbers 52001614A, which requires employers to provide suitable seats to their employees when the nature of the work reasonably permits the use of seats. McDonald's moved for summary judgment in the civil case, and McDonald's argued that the nature of his work did not reasonably permit the use of a seat and its drive-through cash booths. Since both, since the booths were a tight workspace designed for standing, and the fluidity of movement required to service customers could not be reasonably performed from a seated position. And additionally, they argued placing a seat in the booth would create a tripping hazard. The trial court granted the motion, finding that the nature of the work did not reasonably permit the use of a seat in McDonald's California drive through booths. And the Court of Appeal affirmed the summary judgment in the unpublished case of Luckett versus McDonald's Restaurants of California. In its 2016 decision in another case, the California Supreme Court explained that whether under Section 14A a seat is required depends on the totality of the circumstances. And the analysis begins with an examination of the relevant tasks grouped by location and whether the tasks can be performed while seated or require standing. This task-based assessment is also balanced against considerations of feasibility. And feasibility may include, for example, an assessment of whether providing a seat would unduly interfere with other standing tasks whether the frequency of transition from seating to standing may interfere with the work, or whether seated work would impact the quality and effectiveness of overall job performance. This inquiry is not a rigid quantitative analysis based merely upon the counting of tasks or the amount of time spent performing them. The Supreme Court said instead it involves a qualitative assessment of all relevant factors. Returning to the McDonald's case, drive-through cash booth employees, are their primary duties included taking orders and completing payment transactions for drive-through customers. And according to McDonald's witnesses, providing excellent customer service while doing so, it is McDonald's expectation that employees in the cash booth reach out to customers who are sitting in their vehicles rather than make its guests take off their seat belts, stretch, or open their vehicle doors to reach in toward the employee during a payment transaction. And that McDonald's places great emphasis on the guest experience and speed of service. The Court of Appeal concluded by noting, Mr. Luckett has not demonstrated a genuine issue of material fact as to whether it is feasible to place a seat and the drive-through cash booths. And in another appellate case, an employer's sexual harassment defense verdict was reversed 
by the Court of Appeal. In this case, Eunices Argueta began working at Menzies Aviation, which was later acquired by Worldwide. And it's a freight operation company in El Segundo, California. She started in 2008, when she was 18 years old, at a location near the airport. Argueta was a lead agent in the import department, whose supervisor was Sonia Flores, and Dezung Nguyen, Nguyen, Nguyen was their manager. But when Flores was not present, Arguita worked as the acting supervisor and oversaw the works of other agents, and Maria Diaz was its director of human resources for its western region. In 2016 and 2017, several employees whom Arguita supervised submitted written complaints to Worldwide about her, accusing her of bullying, harassment, retaliation, yelling, making threats, and other bad behavior, including discriminating against a pregnant subordinate. In January 2017, as a result, Diaz met with Arguita to discuss these complaints against her, which ended up with a warning given to her to improve her behavior. Much later, Arguita then alleged that Mr. Nguyen began sexually harassing her in 2016, and so she was placed on paid leave while her claim was investigated, and Arguita subsequently claimed many more acts of harassment by him. Nguyen admitted some, but not all, of the acts Arguita alleged, and as a result of the investigation, Worldwide issued a letter of concern to Mr. Nguyen that his conduct was in violation of its company policy. It then imposed a number of conditions on Mr. Nguyen's continued employment. When Ms. Arguita returned from paid leave after this investigation in June 2017, she was transferred to a different floor and her pay remained the same. But in February 2018, she resigned from Worldwide because she said her new schedule was not compatible with her family responsibilities and her new position offered diminished potential to advance. But she went ahead and filed a lawsuit against Worldwide, alleging sexual harassment and retaliation in violation of the Fair Employment and Housing Act. During her trial, Arguida moved in limine to preclude any admission of the substance of the complaints that were made against her by her co-workers in 2017. But the trial court not only allowed their admission, but ruled that the entire text of each complaint could be admitted, and the written complaints were read aloud to the jury by Ms. Diaz when she testified at the trial. At the conclusion of the trial, the jury returned a defense verdict. So, Ms. Arguida filed a motion for a new trial and a motion for judgment notwithstanding the verdict, but the trial court denied both of her motions. So then, Arguida appealed to the Court of Appeal contending the trial court's admission of evidence of the substance of other employees' complaints about her to Worldwide was erroneous and warranted a new trial. And the Court of Appeal agreed with her in the published case 
of Arguita versus Worldwide Flight Services Incorporated. And the court said that the admission of the substance of these complaints against her was prejudicial error and reversed the trial court's denial of her motion for a new trial. The published opinion went on to say that here the employee complaints about appellant fit the quintessential definition of prejudice. The trial court failed to recognize that the evidence had a high potential for undue prejudice. It is, as arguing to contents, character evidence. The complaints show her as mean, rude, lazy, and dishonest. It agreed with Miss Arguida that the high potential for undue prejudice from admission of the substance of these complaints far outweighed the very minimal probative value of that evidence, and limiting instructions would not be effective under the circumstances of this case. And now our crime report. A Culver City man pled guilty to embezzling $10.2 million from his employer, who was an insurance carrier. The employee here was Brinson Kaveb Silver, who lived in Culver City, California, and he pleaded guilty to wire fraud and contempt of court. As part of his guilty plea, Silver agreed to pay more than $10.2 million in restitution to his employer. Silver was the chief marketing officer of Root Incorporated, which is an online car insurance company. Then, when he entered into contracts with four vendors for making marketing services, Silver directed these vendors to send a portion of their contract proceeds to bank accounts in the names of businesses that Mr. Silver owned and controlled. Those diverted payments totaled more than $10.2 million. Mr. Silver used the millions he embezzled from the insurer to buy a $1.4 million yacht, a Mercedes-Benz G550 for nearly $165,000, an amphibious plane, luxury watches, and other similar items. He was let go from his employment last November when the insurer laid off 20% of its staff as part of a cost-cutting move for a company that has struggled to turn a profit since going public in October 2020. The carrier said the fraud was discovered after Mr. Silver left the company. Silver was charged criminally and arrested in June of 2023. A South Bay woman has been sentenced to 15 years in federal prison for billing Medicare more than $24 million in fraudulent claims for medically unnecessary durable medical equipment mostly power wheelchairs and power wheelchair repairs, many of which were never performed. This woman was Tamara Yvonne Motley, also known as Tamara Ogembi, and she lives in Redondo Beach. She was also ordered to pay in excess of $13.1 million in restitution, as well as an additional $2,300 in special assessments. At the conclusion of her five-day trial, a jury found her guilty of 20 counts of health care fraud, two counts of aggravated identity theft, 
and one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering. Motley was the de facto owner of the Hawthorne-based Action Medical Equipment and Supplies and was also the de facto owner of the Ventura County-based Kaja Medical Equipment and Supply, and both companies were enrolled with Medicare in the names of Motley's out-of-state relatives. Motley orchestrated a scheme in which she paid marketers for patient referrals and then directed them to take patients to corrupt physicians who prescribed medically unnecessary durable medical equipment, such as these power wheelchairs. And the repairs she claimed to have performed were expensive, often billed for three or $4,000 each, and accounted for nearly half of Action's billings and almost all of Kaja's. Two other defendants were convicted in this case, Cynthia Carina Marquez of Paramount, who worked as an office manager at both Action and Kaja. She pleaded guilty in December 2019 to two counts of making false statements affecting health care program. She, reserved, she received a time-served sentence, was placed on supervised release for three years, and was ordered to pay nearly $9.9 million in restitution. Also, Juan Roberto Murillo of Montebello, who worked at both medical supply companies as a repair technician, pleaded guilty in November 2019 to one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering. He was sentenced to three years probation and was ordered to pay in excess of $2.5 million in restitution. And now in regulatory news, the DWC has announced that its Stockton office has moved to Lodi on December 12, 2023. The new office will be known as the Lodi District Office and will be located at 3021 Reynolds Ranch Parkway, Suite 130 in Lodi. The main office phone number will remain the same. After the move, the Lodi District Office commenced in-person operations on Tuesday, December 12th, and is now operating as usual. And in medical news, the chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, Kathy McMorris-Rogers, and two of her colleagues on the Health and Oversight Subcommittee sent a farcical letter to the Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Robert Califf regarding the FDA's inadequate inspections of drug manufacturing plants in India and China. The letter claimed that the FDA's recent decision to address shortages of critical drugs by allowing the temporary import of otherwise unapproved drugs from India and China makes having effective foreign inspection programs in those counties critical. And they went on to say they were worried that the United States is overly reliant on sourcing from foreign manufacturers with a demonstrated pattern of repeatedly violating FDA safety regulations. And it is worth noting that Bloomberg News reported that the Department of Defense recently announced that it will begin independently testing the quality and safety of imported generic drugs and Defense Department officials are in talks with ValueSure, an independent lab to test the quality and safety of generic drugs it purchases 
for millions of military members and their families. Generic drugs account for 90% of prescriptions dispensed in the United States, and they also represent a sizable share of the drugs used by hospitals to treat patients in ICUs, oncology units, transplant centers, and emergency departments. And there's growing evidence that confidence in the safety of these drugs may be misplaced, as quality issues are the precipitating factor in more than 60% of generic drug shortages. The Hatch-Waxman Act of 1984 created a streamlined pathway for generic drugs. All the manufacturer must do is demonstrate that the generic drug it proposes to sell is bioequivalent, meaning it delivers roughly the same amount of active pharmaceutical ingredients into a person's bloodstream at roughly the same rate and duration as the brand name drug on which it is based. To demonstrate bioequivalence, a manufacturer typically hires a contract research organization to perform the necessary testing with 24 to 36 healthy volunteers. Once the drug is approved for sale in the U.S., the FDA relies on periodic inspections of pharmaceutical plants and record reviews to ensure that a company complies with good manufacturing practices. But the FDA itself does not routinely test the medicines themselves. Instead, it asserts that the manufacturers are responsible for the quality and safety of their products. In the early years of the Hatch-Waxman, this honor system worked reasonably well, but it says it does not do so today. Recent FDA actions and published research indicate that generic medicines are not always bioequivalent or safe. CVS Pharmacy announced CVS Cost Vantage, a new approach that evolves the traditional pharmacy reimbursement model and brings greater transparency and simplicity to the system. CVS Cost Vantage will define the drug cost and related reimbursement with contracted pharmacy benefit managers, those are PBMs, and payors using a transparent formula built on the cost of the drug, a set markup, and a fee that reflects the care and value of pharmacy services. CVS Pharmacy plans to launch CVS Cost Vantage with PBMs for their commercial payers in 2025. CVS Caremark also introduced TrueCost, what they say is a model innovation that offers client pricing reflecting the true net cost of prescription drugs with visibility into administrative fees. CVS Caremark plans to launch CVS Caremark TrueCost in 2025, and CVS is shifting course amidst a changing commercial and regulatory landscape for drug pricing. Blue Shield of California announced last August it would revamp how it pays for medicine by enlisting five companies to handle the chain of getting drugs from manufacturer to consumer instead of a pharmacy benefit manager. The chief executive of Blue Shield of California said 
The current pharmacy system is extremely expensive, enormously complex, completely opaque, and designed to maximize the profit of participants instead of the quality, convenience, and cost-effectiveness for consumers. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.